you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 John 1, that's where we're going to be this morning, 1 John 1. We're going to look at the first four verses. It's always a unique Sunday when the Labor Day, Labor Day retreat's happening. Probably two-thirds or more of the church is up on the hill, usually these, this weekend, and so it's a little more sparse. It's a little weird standing up here, looking out and seeing, you know, empty, empty, few people, you know, it's a, I don't know if I can see everybody toward the back. It's a, it's a little different kind of feel up here on Sundays when it's Labor Day retreat weekend or a Sunday like this because uh, it's a big sanctuary and everybody's gone. So that's all right. And I know there are others who are on vacation that we'll be wanting to pray for and, as well this weekend as they travel and that kind of thing. So there's always a lot going on. This is the last week, real weekend of, of kind of summer, the summer experience. Um, we're thankful. I'm always thankful to have friends from out of town who are here. Uh, Robin and Ryan Powell are, are friends of ours, too, from Clifton Fords. They're, uh, Robin's Aaron, Aaron's sister, and they're visiting, I know, this weekend with the Clarks, but we, we remember them very fondly from our time in Clifton Fords, Virginia, when I was the youth pastor there. And uh, we're just thankful to have you guys with us this morning and just thankful to uh, be able to fellowship with you all. But uh, let's look at John, 1 John 1 this morning, the first four verses starts off, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The epistles of John are the foundation, essentially, for what's referred to as Johannine Christianity. They are distinct even from John's gospel in terms of content and theological emphasis, though there are certainly some similarities to be sure. His emphasis, unlike many of the other epistles of the New Testament, is the idea that Jesus is one who is of old, who came in the flesh, lived a human life, and died in the flesh for our salvation, taking his place at the right hand of the Father. Essentially, their emphasis is very centrally the gospel. Many of the other epistles of the New Testament were written in contrast for the purpose of the establishment of the church as an entity, which made them much more practical in nature and much more nuts and bolts kind of stuff in nature. Not so with the epistles of John. Now, based on the internal evidence here in 1 John, it's easy to tell that this first epistle was written in response to what was a developing split that existed within the broader Christian community. And because of that split, there had become a break in fellowship. And because of that break in fellowship, there had been a developing misunderstanding that was happening in regards to some of the core tenets of the Christian faith. There were those who had denied much of what we just mentioned in regards to Jesus. This idea that he came in the flesh, that he lived a sinless life and died in the flesh in very literal terms. There was a denial of those very central facts of the gospel. These, These that had been maybe led astray believed other pillars of the faith, but denied these key pieces of understanding about Christ. And understanding about Christ is central and so important to the gospel. So what we see here at the very beginning of 1 John is that the author seeks to address this this misunderstanding as his purpose becomes very evident right from verse 1 of chapter 1 where we're looking at this morning. The letter begins, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now you can see here a description, I suppose, the makings of an eyewitness account from the author. There are a couple of things going on, even in the greeting section in the epistle. We see that John's already dealing with some of these central pieces that were being lost because he begins with this idea. The message of Jesus is something that dates back to the beginning of time. You need to catch that. The message of Jesus is something that dates back to the beginning of time. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. In many ways, this speaks to some of the similarities that we alluded to before between, between John's epistles and John's gospel. But there's a lot more going on here as well. Because this statement is going to become a linchpin to everything that he is about to talk about through the rest of the letter. Everything else that he's about to say. In many ways, you could argue that, that what is found in this verse is essential to the remainder of John's message throughout the epistle. Because without it, there is no epistle. And really, from a larger perspective, as we'll see, without it, there is no gospel. Because he starts off very clearly by suggesting that this gospel message and all of its components, all of its components, are something that was in the works, even from the beginning of time. Even from the beginning of time. And I think it's it's worth noting that John seems to find this important enough and central enough to everything else that he's about to say that he leads with it. Because again, without it, there is no letter. Without it, there is really no gospel. Before anything else, he's suggesting that it's important for us to know that this message is one that far predates our existence and one that even dates back to the beginning of everything. Nothing that has happened throughout the course of human history has surprised God. Nothing. And that point speaks to a couple of very important things that that have very real and lasting impact in our lives. It's easy to think about theology as something that's just distant, this distant study for people off in seminaries, people who have advanced degrees. But no, theology has very real implications for our lives, and we're going to see that as we look at these few verses in 1 John. Because first of all, when we look at, at, at what that means, we realize that it speaks to something very important, which is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. There's, something re- there's a lot of things that are really important that can be said about the sovereignty of God. So often when life hits us, when we're, when we're going through something, when we go through troubled times especially, when we look at what's happened down in Houston, when we look at some of the racial tensions in our country, when we look at the uncertainty around the world, especially we wonder if God is even listening. We wonder if he has any idea what's going on in our lives or if he, ha- or if he even cares. We wonder if he has any control over anything. I think to some degree that's a natural reaction for many of us. In a secularized society, we've been conditioned that way because sometimes it feels like things are just spinning out of control. Like things are just spinning out of control. You ever feel that way? Yeah? (laughs) I hope so because otherwise I'm the only one here and that's... that's, When we look at the state of the world, we find ourselves wondering if God has any clue what's going on down here. And if so, what is he going to do about it? Similar thoughts probably swirled around for the Jews at this time and probably still do. Remember, this is a people that at the time this letter had been written had endured oppression and struggles like we couldn't believe. They'd seen their nation overthrown. They'd seen through the centuries their people taken into captivity. And until Christ's coming, they had endured a long period of God's silence through it all. But a passage like this 
reminding us of the antiquity of the gospel message, gives us a reminder of God's sovereignty, a reminder that he maintains control over all. I can't think of a more relevant message in any age for any number of situations. I don't know all that you're going through as individuals or even corporately. I don't know always what's happening here. As you know, because of my role with ACGC, I come and go, so I don't even know what's going on in the body of believers all the time here because I'm with many other bodies of believers around the country. There are a lot of things going on in each of our lives. There are a lot of things going on with us corporately in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world. There's never been a more relevant message with all of that swirling around than the message of the sovereignty of God. This idea that God is in control. This idea that God is aware, not only aware, but able to move and work in all things. But when you look at the message given, us, given to us at the top of 1 John, no matter what the circumstances, you can remember that. He still has a plan. A plan that began in ancient times, long before it ever actually came to be. This was a plan in place long before anyone could have begun to identify a single piece. Certainly then, God's got some idea how to maneuver our stuff if he can maneuver all that. It speaks to God's sovereignty, and second, it speaks to exactly who Christ is. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. All of that, he's speaking very clearly about the nature of who Christ is. I don't think when you read this, or when you read the Gospel of John either, there's any doubt that the author knows who it is that he's writing about. He's writing about the Savior, the Lord. He's writing about one who is both man and God. He is from the beginning and he is Lord of all. This is a picture planted for us quite clearly in verse 1 with those words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. What a parallel in many ways to the first chapter of the Gospel of John where, where he so eloquently laid out just who it is in that book he was writing about. When he writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Such similar expression in both those greetings. They paint a picture of the amazing nature of the one who came as the Savior of the world. The significance, the eternal significance of who that was. This was the one who was prophesied about. John is announcing the one who I'm writing about, the one who I'm sharing about, the one who we've seen with our eyes, who we've looked upon, who we've touched with our hands, is he which was written about and is he who was from the beginning. When Isaiah spoke the words of the, about the words of the coming Messiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This happened. This happened. The prophet's words have come true. 
What's amazing, folks, is that what John seems to be intending to pass on here is that this ancient plan of God where he would come in the flesh as the Savior of the world, this has come to fruition. And not only that, but, but, but that he and others, John and others, others who were maybe some of those that he was writing to, they were witnesses to it. Or in other words, John is telling them that the the gospel message was not only some ancient plan of God, but had become a modern reality as well. And folks, the joy that we have and the relevancy that this holds to us is that this remains a modern reality for us today as well. This message that goes back to the beginning of time continues through human history to us. This is a modern reality for us today, and it's one that many have witnessed. One of the struggles that was going on here, which was being addressed, was whether or not this Christ, this Messiah, had actually come in the flesh. Whether the words of the prophets had come true in a real, tangible, literal sense. Or was there just this just figurative meaning behind some of this? So John responds to this issue very clearly with what we've just read. That which was from the beginning, we've heard it, we've seen it, we've touched it. The word of life that we talk about, we've experienced it. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. In essence, folks, you could look at him as an eyewitness here, as if in a court case. For instance, um, as you know, in our society, very often when a lawyer really wants his case to stick in court, he'll certainly dig for physical evidence, forensics, DNA, etc. Perhaps one of the most impactful things for juries is someone who actually saw what happened. I saw this man, I saw this woman do it. I almost got sat in a jury this last week. I was dismissed. I'm really thankful for that. I saw this man, I saw this woman do this. I am an eyewitness to their crime. I watched it happen. I can, without a shadow of a doubt, identify their face. And that, is what, and that is them. I saw them do it. That, it seems, would be extremely incriminating. And essentially, John was offering himself up here with many, many others as eyewitnesses. Those who'd experienced this ancient gospel message becoming a physical, visible reality. And folks, many had experienced it. The eyewitnesses to this whole occurrence were numerous. They were numerous. The twelve that walked with him daily, others who'd regularly relationally connected with him, he'd preached to thousands of people. He'd healed people. He'd talked with people. The masses worshipped him during what we often refer to as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As he rode in on a donkey and palm branches were thrown down in front of him and the masses cried, Hosanna. And then those same masses a week later watched him crucified. Then he rose again and appeared to a whole host of people until his final ascension into heaven. It's one of the most well-documented events in human history. But folks, the experience is something that goes much deeper than that because what we're seeing out of 1 John is the writing of one who's experienced Christ on a deeper level who's gotten to know Christ's heart and message, one who experienced the authenticity of that message, one who's not only seen and heard Christ, but ultimately knows Him intimately. And as such, He not only speaks to the reality from a purely factual context, 
which was certainly important, but from a deep and meaningful experiential kind of context as well. As one who lived this, who received it, and who can testify to how his life had been changed by it. Therefore, illustrating how it can do the same for so many others. And you see that in verse 1, and you see that as he kind of shifts gears here a little bit in verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And finally, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, so he's established kind of the ancient nature of this message. He's established that this was something that that came into fruition before, long before humans roamed the earth. And he's established himself as a physical witness to its fulfillment and even appears as though he's really experienced life change himself. Establishing himself even as a beneficiary of this message. And now we see that he shifts gears to proclaiming it. So what we start to see is that the power of this gospel message will continue to affect lives and it must be proclaimed. The power of this gospel message will continue to affect lives and it must be proclaimed. Because as we roll on, we start to see words like eternal life pop up. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then he makes kind of an interesting statement. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I don't have to talk to you too much about the value of eternal life, the importance of eternal life. Most of us here probably understand that on a very intimate level as believers in Jesus. But there's another key piece to the benefit of of the proclamation of this message that's talked about here in 1 John. And it's something that's really interesting to me. It it may not be interesting to you. It is to me. Um, I've discovered and been told mostly by my wife that it's possible that maybe things that I find interesting aren't things that everybody else finds interesting. and, And that's okay. But this is interesting to me, and I think it will be to you. Um, And it's primarily because you don't hear fellowship talked about that much as if it's a primary benefit of a relationship with Christ. But that's another key piece here that we see. And that's how John chooses to illustrate the benefits of walking with Christ, the benefits of proclaiming the gospel. Fellowship with Christ is where it all starts. When we speak of the benefits of entering into the Christian life, we tend to focus almost completely on eternal life and and some of those other things like hope and peace, but not so much with fellowship. When you think about it, the starting point to all that other stuff is fellowship. But fellowship is something that often gets lost because perhaps because we we don't always have a firm grip on exactly what it is we're talking about when we're talking about fellowship. When we're talking about fellowship, we're talking about a Greek word. The Greek word translated fellowship here is one that you may or may not have heard before. It's the word koinonia. It occurs here in verse 3 and then again in verse 6. 
Now, it's a word that's not easily put into English. It's one of the tough things about, and that's one of the reasons why I think fellowship's misunderstood and a lot of biblical concepts are are misunderstood. A lot of Greek words don't easily translate into English. Same could be said about the Hebrew language. makes it very hard for direct word-for-word translation. It requires a lot more explanation, a lot more digging deeper. And koinonia is one of those words. It's a word that's not easily put in English. It's been translated fellowship, communion, participation. It's been used in reference to sharing a common life and partnership. In Hellenistic culture, you find the word used to describe partners in business or joint owners of a piece of property. In the New Testament, it most commonly refers to Christians who share a common faith or who share possessions or or who are partners in the gospel. And perhaps the most impactful use of the word in Scripture occurs over 60 times in the New Testament. And it occurs in reference to the supernatural life that Christians share in. The supernatural life that Christians share in. The supernatural life that is disclosed in the incarnate Christ. If it is the eternal life that comes from the Father and becomes the life shared individually and corporately by the company of believers. Or in other words, koinonia refers to the life that we share in as individuals and corporately in, with, through Christ. Together as a Christian family. It is this koinonia that, that is what causes the oneness that we have in the faith. It's, it's how the church can be referred to collectively as the bride of Christ. A whole host of people through human history referred to in this one way. And why we have such a responsibility to one another, no matter what our differences are. It's why we have that responsibility. So what John's getting at here is that the koinonia is the union in common faith brought about by the proclamation of that faith. Proclamation of that faith. Bruner says of it that that it's the combining of the vertical with the horizontal, the divine God with the human us that constitutes Christianity as an unparalleled lifestyle. It is this koinonia that makes Christianity ultimately so powerful. It's our fellowship that makes Christianity so powerful. Have you ever thought about it that way? Yes, no, yeah, maybe. A friend of mine a few years back, um, his name is Terry Sullivan. Powell's no Terry too. He was up at Camp Kovac. He was called to Jacksonville as a church planner. Um, He'd become an Advent Christian minister through an unlikely relationship with a camp up in Virginia called Camp Kovac or AC AC Camp up there. While there, he and I became friends and have shared a deep and meaningful fellowship in Christ for sure. Through that fellowship, I introduced Terry to a guy named Sam Warren who who used to work at ACGC. And he got him hooked up with the Florida AC Conference who ultimately called Terry to plant a church down there in Jacksonville. Now, to many onlookers, it would have seemed like coincidence upon coincidence that led Terry down there. And what's more, it would seem even more ridiculous when you look at how this church was built. Faith First Community Church, as it was eventually called, was made up of some of the most unlikely participants to be sitting side by side together. In this church, Terry had drug dealers come to Christ and worship alongside bankers making six figures a year. He had gang members worshiping alongside police officers. Terry used to tell me that his favorite story was a gang leader that came into the church and the first person to walk up to him and minister to him was an executive at one of the bank centers there in Jacksonville. 
who used to come into church in a three-piece suit every week. Two men that, believe it or not, became great friends and would always sit together in church. These men who, under any other circumstances, had no business in the same room. You could go to Faith First Community Church and meet people of all different races, all different kinds of backgrounds, and it was made up of people who, without Christ, had no business being in the same room together. Under any other circumstances, you wouldn't see them any, within 100 yards of each other. In fact, some of these people would run the other way if they saw some of the other people coming, absent Christ. Absent Christ. But that is the power of God and God's gospel, folks. That is the power of this ancient and modern message. When ancient meets modern, that's the power. These events that God had planned out before the beginning of time, these events that continually bring people together, even to this day, in ways that without Christ would be unimaginable. This is why Paul wrote this in Colossians 3. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the power of those words. So the picture we get here is that this koinonia is something that John is trying to demonstrate as life-changing. Something that breaks all barriers. He's not just saying, you know, hey, well, you know, if, if, you, if we tell you this stuff, you can get saved and then you can hang out with us at a fellowship dinner after church. That's good too. But the fellowship that John is referring to here is much, much more than that. It's much more than that. The spiritual power of this koinonia that is only possible through Christ. One who is of old, who came in the flesh, and who continues to impact lives to this day. Without that, this koinonia, our lives lose so much meaning. None of it is possible without all of that. This koinonia, it's vital and it's painted throughout this that we understand that this fellowship is directly tied to a personal relationship with Jesus. This fellowship that exists and allows for fulfillment, this eternal life that comes, all of it, all of it, is interwoven within that relationship with Jesus. It all begins with fellowship with him. A fellowship that comes through faith. It cannot exist without him at the center of it all. But folks, with him, with him, we have the opportunity to take part in something that dates back to the beginning of time. We get to become part of this continuum. Something that was made a reality, something that was witnessed by so many, and something that continues to have very real impact all around the world with people we've never met, but somehow people we have this extremely intimate connection with nonetheless. Because folks, as many of us in this room know, the amazing impact of this message knows no bounds. It touches hearts in a way that just couldn't be done without God's power at work. It's a message that 20 years or so ago transformed me. It's a message that has transformed many in this room. It is a message of hope, of love, of deep and meaningful fellowship. And a message that even contains some pain and suffering as well. And still we know as John writes here, that our joy is yet to be made complete. Our joy is yet to be made complete. The present joy in fellowship is only but a token expression of the joy that awaits us at the second coming of Christ. The one whom we share about with this gospel message. 
the final coming of Jesus, this final coming of Jesus. Once we have proclaimed this message to the world, that coming is the one where our joy will be made complete. It will be the time when we'll know no more pain and no more suffering. And it's a time we all have the opportunity to take part in. If we will only enter into this fellowship with Him, this koinonia, which He has offered to us all. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. It is the word of life. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your gospel message. We're so thankful for what it means to us. We're thankful for the fellowship we have with you and with one another through you. Lord, we are so thankful that we have the ability, we we have the chance to be part of something that dates back so far before us, that goes back to the very beginnings of humankind. Lord, something that will continue on long beyond us. Lord, to your second coming. At which time our joy will be complete. Lord, we're thankful for this message of John and, uh, that you have brought to us. Lord, help us to internalize it. Help us to each and every day reflect upon the real power that we can find in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Bless us as we go now. In Jesus' name, amen.